Okay. Well, um, I'm just so excited to be up here today, um, just to be able to celebrate with you guys on this Lord's Day when we, uh, as a church, universal church, uh, by and large, we celebrate and commemorate the resurrection of our Lord. There could be no greater event. Um, there was no more significant event in the history of the church. Um, if you just look at Acts, uh, the theology of the book of Acts, the number one doctrine in the book of Acts is not predestination. It is not justification. It's not election. Uh, it is not ecclesiology. It's not eschatology. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the apostolic focus in the book of Acts. It's amazing because it meant that all of God's redemptive promises were vindicated and they were true and everything Christ said was true and everything he promised is true and everything that happened from Genesis to Acts is true. It's all true and uh, that's why it is such an amazing redemptive event. We did read uh, Luke chapter 27. We're going to read a little bit more out of Luke, and so you'll have to really follow me along here. But let's pray for our time together as we look at this passage. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for our risen Lord today. We thank you, Father, above everything, more than just a formality, more than just a, Lord, just a day that um, tradition has chosen to focus on the resurrection, we thank you above all for the reality of the resurrection, that because he lives, we live. Because he was risen, we are justified. And because he was risen again, Lord, all of our hopes and all of our dreams, so long as they are for the glory of God, are yes and amen in him. Thank you, Lord, that you did not allow your Holy One to see corruption, but that you rose him mightily, vindicated him, arising him again from the dead, raising him to the right hand, causing him to ascend to the right hand of power on high, as our brother Alan said, where he makes intercession for us forever. Lord, thank you for our advocate today, our risen advocate our glorious advocate. We pray that you would help us to see now this incredible truth that is contained here in this short little passage, but in this significant text here in Luke, Christ in all of the Scriptures. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That is the title of my sermon today, The Risen Christ in All of the Scriptures. All of the Scriptures. And, you know, as we consider the resurrection, Luke is a great encouragement to us because it helps us really to better appreciate everything that Jesus did and everything that he accomplished. As you see the presence of Christ pervasively throughout all of the scriptures. And this is what Jesus uses to encourage the saints here on the road to Emmaus. And so for our purpose... I want to go back into the text, so let's go back to uh, Luke 24, beginning in verse 13, to just get a better grasp of the context of this, of this text, this verse that we read. 
You know the story, but it's such a marvelous story. Let's read it again. Let's tell it again because it's worth to be told forevermore. But verse 13 says, And behold, two of them, that is two of his disciples, were going to that very day, uh, on that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about the, all the things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what, what are these things, these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only, the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, a mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and in all, and, 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 and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to, this, to sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that, he was the, that, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all of this, it is the third day since all these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. They went uh, when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all of the Scriptures. Let's pray one more time for this text. Father, please give us illumination as we look at this passage of Scripture and to help us open our understanding. I just feel the need to pray like these disciples that our hearts would burn and that our eyes would be opened. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for that again. But that is the, um, the subject of today's message, the risen Christ in all of the Scriptures. Now quickly, I want to show you that Luke 24 serves to answer several very important aspects of not just Christian theology, but it serves to really show the church something very important, something very, very significant in the doctrine of the early church that they had seemingly failed to grasp. I mean, so much so that Jesus has to say here in verse 25, Oh, foolish men, foolish men, they had not seen something in the Scripture. And what was that? Well, they had not seen that He was meant to suffer. That, the, that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. It was necessary for Christ to suffer. You know, if you know anything about the Gospels, you know that the, the disciples would often misunderstand things. And one of the things that the disciples misunderstood time and time again is the nature of the kingdom of God, right? 
You can see this by the fact that in John chapter 6, they try to seize him and force him to become king. They were going to bring the kingdom. And so oftentimes, you can see this, the disciples trying to appoint themselves to positions of power, or at least a zealous mother tried to appoint her sons in a position of power, saying, oh, wow, this is looking good. we got thousands of people following Jesus and going around and bowing down to Him and crying out that He is the, the Messiah, the Son of David. I better try to get closer to this man if, in fact, He is the one like it says here in Luke 24, that is going to deliver Israel. See, they think the point is be associated with Jesus on earth. Get close to him now so that when his kingdom comes fully, you'll have a good, uh, a close uh, association with him and with his powerful kingdom. When he destroys the Romans and he conquers all of God's enemies and smashes them under his feet, and oftentimes, and oftentimes, Christ would relay to them that they had missed the whole nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus saying the kingdom of God is within. If he casts out demons, the kingdom of God is at hand. It has come upon you, he says. The kingdom of God was first and foremost spiritual. They had missed this, that the kingdom of God was salvation. The kingdom of God was coming to know Christ, being identified with Christ, spiritually identified with Christ, having union with Christ, partaking of Christ, eating Christ, drinking His blood. That's what it meant to be part of His kingdom. Faith was the way into the kingdom. Faith was the way. And this kingdom would be established through suffering, not through conquest. Not through conquest. It is the humiliation of the Son of God before His exaltation. That's the way that God had ordained it. That's, the, that's what the Scriptures had foretold. But this whole passage in Luke doesn't just serve to show us the purpose of Christ's sufferings, but also the purpose of His appearance. Now, follow along quickly with me in Luke 24, because in Luke 24, several things happen, or there are several reasons for Him appearing to His disciples. Number one, look at verse 36. It was to confirm the disciples' faith, to confirm their faith. And we'll just read the text again. Well, oh, oh, we haven't read this text, but let's just read on 26 to 43. While they were there telling these things, he stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and their amazement, they were in emotional ecstasy over seeing the risen Christ, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? You want empirical proof of the resurrection? Let's break bread together. He gave them a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, ate it right before them. He wasn't a vegetarian. <laughs> the, the second thing that it does is that it confirms, or excuse me, it commissions the church. He confirms their faith, and he also appears to them in order to commission them. Look at verse 20, or 47. 
He says, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. This is Luke's great commission. Beginning from Jerusalem, say, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. There Jesus commissioning the church and promising that Pentecost would come. And with Pentecost, power for proclamation. Because right now, they're afraid. Right now, they're cowering. They need a special endowment of the Spirit of God in order to turn these men from cowards into, into you know, unashamed preachers of the Word of God so that they can take the pulpit, as it were, to the streets. Third thing is that he uses this occasion of appearing to them to clarify the Scriptures. And this is our focus. Look at verse 27. Well, let me read 27 to you, and then we're going to read verse 44. Verse 27 says this, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. Verse 44, Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is where we're going to camp out. So not only was the purpose to explain the suffering, the purpose was also to, the purpose was for him to appear and give them various things, vindication, confirm their faith, but it was also to clarify the Scripture. It was to show them the purpose of God in all of the Scripture. And how does the Scripture work in terms of this? Number one, it works by building anticipation to Christ. Anticipation to Christ. There is a prophetic anticipation in all of the Scriptures about Christ. Again, verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. They had only focused on the fact that God was sending a king, and they had misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. The whole Old Testament is structured in such a way that it builds great anticipation of this coming prophet, this coming king, this coming priest. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Messiah. You remember that passage out of Deuteronomy chapter 18? Moses tells the people, a prophet will arise among you. Listen to him. God will put his words in his mouth. Listen to him. And then how does he end the book of Deuteronomy? He ends the book of Deuteronomy by saying, a prophet like this has never arisen, leaving us hanging. Where's this prophet? that Moses has been talking about. Moses was very careful to point out he hasn't arisen yet. But the whole Old Testament is structured around anticipating Jesus. This is what's so critical about this. No longer is the messianic theology of the Old Testament nameless. You could deposit a name into every messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is about Jesus and nobody else. 
We can just go on. The ark that saved the people on the waters, that ark was about one person, Jesus, who if you're in him, you'll be saved from the wrath of God. The Passover lamb was about one person, Jesus. You see, the whole Old Testament is about him. From the seed of Genesis all the way to the messenger and the Lord suddenly himself appearing in Malachi 3. Genesis 3, Malachi 3. What does he say? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. The volume of the book is written of who? Me. The whole book, you just lay the book open and it's about Jesus. It doesn't matter where you're at. Funny, Chris Matthews and I had a, we had a running joke at the Shepherds Conference this week, you know. Um, we've been kind of glorying overseeing Christ in the Old Testament. Not in any weird allegorical way, but just in ways that it's there. It's, it's obvious. And a brother told us, you know, be careful. Christ is not under every rock, you know. And we were just joking, like, well, he's, he's there. <laughs> he made the rocks. The rocks will cry out. You try to hide Christ, he'll just come beaming out of the passage of Scripture. Don't try to push Christ down. He's there. The Scripture is just preaching about Christ from the very beginning to the very end. It's amazing. All of Scripture builds up to this fullness of the time that Paul talks about when the Son of God would come and be born under the law, born of a woman, which is going back again to Isaiah 9. You see how this works. The volume of the book is written of Him. It doesn't only anticipate Christ, it also vindicates Christ. Back in Luke 24, verse 21, listen to the tone of the voice of these disciples. We were hoping. In other words, they they were sad because they they didn't see their hope met. They, They didn't see their hope realized. We were hoping that it was He, that it was He that would redeem Israel. They spoke better than they knew. God did send His Son. Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. If by Israel you mean the true people of God. Yes, He did. And not one of His people can fall out of His hand. But Jesus, you know, He he predicted this very thing. He he anticipated this very moment when the disciples would go from a moment of sadness right after the crucifixion, all of their dreams are shattered, all of their hopes are gone, they're just in depression and darkness and despair. He, He promised them that this would come, but he also promised them of the subsequent joy of the resurrection. John chapter 16, verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to a child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too, you have grief now but I will see you again. That's the resurrection. I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. What's the resurrection about? Joy that our Savior is risen. 
that our justification is sure, that our redemption is at hand, that the end of the ages have come upon us. It's just magnificent, amazing. But it also serves to magnify Christ, as I said, throughout all of the Scriptures. And this last point is very, very crucial. It is crucial because we see Jesus handling the Bible. I don't think anything makes me more excited in the whole world. And I just went to a conference, and I heard many good speakers, good preachers. And you know when a good speaker, maybe your favorite speaker, comes up, and he's getting ready to speak, there's an anticipation. There's, a, there's, a, there's just a passion. There's just like, this is what I came for. I can't wait to hear, you know, whoever your hero is. Listen, my, my hero's Christ. And Jesus is about to grab the Word of God and about to explain it to us. I love it. And what does Jesus do? First, Jesus taught the disciples to look not just in a few passages in the Old Testament, but he says, in all the scriptures. En passes tes grafes. It could not be more emphatic. In all of the scriptures. That, of course, at that time when it was spoken, is referring to Genesis all the way to Malachi. The whole Old Testament, Jesus said, by the way, did you see the distance that these disciples are traveling? Go back to Luke, where the passage begins as they're setting out on their journey. It actually tells us how far they're traveling, doesn't it? It says that these men were going about seven miles to Jerusalem. Have you ever walked seven miles? Have you ever walked seven miles with a couple of friends and then you stopped? periodically to discuss something among yourselves. Now, how long is that going to take? I, I, I think, you know, I, I, I googled it. <laughs> how long does it take to walk seven miles, a normal, a normal stride? And, and the average uh, uh, Google thing or whatever search, about an hour and a half. Okay, but what about stopping and talking and discussing? It could have took them two hours, three hours, Jesus is sitting there and just telling them chapter after chapter, book after book of the Old Testament that speaks of him. He's just, te- he's just taking them through bibli- biblical theology, just book after book after book, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, illusion after illusion after illusion, picture after picture after picture. It's all of him. And secondly, Christ is magnified here because of their response. They have encountered something new. They've encountered a new hermeneutic, if you would, a newfound knowledge, a new, a new interpretive key to all the scriptures. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand scripture. That's what we need. We need our, high, our, our eyes opened but not just a newfound understanding, they also had a newfound affection. Look at verse 32. Disciples are sort of talking amongst themselves. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was exegeting, we could translate that, the scriptures to us? Wow! See, I like exegesis. I don't know about you. You do. You just maybe you don't know that it's called that, but that's what you like when somebody opens up a text, explains it, gives you the original meaning, and then draws out implications from it. That's exegetical work. 
And I can't imagine anything more magnificent than the Son of God himself exegeting a passage of Scripture for me and showing me text after text after text about what? About himself. Oh, so glorious. Their hearts burned within them. They were, so, they were probably hanging on every word. They were hanging on every word. Matter of fact, this word, again, explaining to them. He was opening up the Scriptures to them. He was arguing from the Scripture, convincing them. They were, they were caused to understand and recognize new things they'd never seen before. And it was all concerning Him. He sent them back into all the Scriptures, the Law, the Prophets, he sent them back to the Psalms to find him in a new and fresh way. They had missed significant details about the Messiah. They had missed that he was to suffer. They didn't understand. They didn't interpret that right. Maybe they didn't interpret Isaiah 53 correctly and the suffering servant. Maybe they didn't understand that passage that talks about the anguish of his soul and the fact that he poured himself out to death. When Jesus was telling the people in the Gospel of John about his suffering and his death, the people asked him, we've heard of the Son of Man, but who is this Son of Man that you're talking about? We don't know anything about that. We know of a Son of Man who will come and conquer and rule and be glorious and be powerful. But you're talking about going to your death. Going to your death. You know, I don't think there could be anything more contradictory in the world than to be walking around with a New Testament and Psalms. And if you are, don't get condemned. I've got one, okay? But you know what I mean. New Testament and Psalms. You know what that conveys to me is that we think that the book of Leviticus is not about Jesus. Have you ever found yourself in the Old Testament reading, let's say, out of Leviticus? Now, we always pick on Leviticus. Poor Leviticus. I'm actually going to take you to Leviticus in a moment. Numbers, Deuteronomy, is that when do we get to Jesus already? What's with all the blood and the goats and the sacrifice of the offerings, the meal offering, the burnt offering, all this? What is all this? What is it about? Well, it's about Jesus, according to Jesus, because he said, beginning with the law of Moses, the law of Moses are the first five books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy is about Jesus Christ. He is there. He's found there. As a matter of fact, this whole, this whole scripture here in, in verse 44 is about the whole division of the whole Old Testament. He refers to the law of Moses, to the prophets, and in the prophets he speaks both of latter and former prophets, both Joshua through 2 Kings, Isaiah through Malachi, and then the Psalms. And in the Psalm, in the Jewish Bible, Psalms goes first, and often Psalms is just a way of talking about all of what's known as the writings. Psalms, Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, those types of books. The whole, this is an exhaustive way of saying this. One commentator said, For Luke, the Old Testament was a Christian book from beginning to end. This was not grasped by the disciples during his earthly ministry, but now, due to Jesus' interpreting the scriptures, now they saw this clearly. That's so wonderful. So then the first thing is that it gives us a more robust, Christ-centered hermeneutic, a Christ-centered way of interpreting Scripture. I mean, I just randomly, the other day, I was, I don't know where we were, I think I was uh, during one of the sessions at the Shepherd's Conference, just opened my Bible. You ever done that? 
I'm not promoting, you know, Bible roulette, but I am saying I just opened my Bible, and my Bible opened to Psalm 40. And in Psalm 40, I just glanced down, and I looked at it. Psalm 40, verse 47. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I opened to Psalm 40 and read about Jesus. <laughs> Amazing. The problem that sometimes preachers have is they just have a too hard of a time trying to tie in the Christological connections, and sometimes people just give up, say, oh, well, we can't do it, because then you're going to get into allegory, and you're going to stretch it and spiritualize the text. I tell you what, I agree in the cur- with the kernel and the substance of what Spurgeon said, that every, every sermon should have Christ in it. You've heard the story, let me relay it to you. He tells a story of a young preacher who preaches in the presence of someone he respected, this old, eminent Pure, uh, divine, this old preacher, renowned preacher. And after his sermon, he goes up to this older gentleman whom he respected, and he asked him a question, sir, what did you think of my sermon? And the old man said, it was a very poor sermon indeed. What could be more earth-shattering for a young preacher than that? Poor sermon, the young man said. It took me a long time to study it. He says, ah, no doubt it did. Why then would you say that it is a poor sermon? Did you not think my explanation of the text was accurate? Oh, yes. The old preacher said, very correct indeed. Well then, why do you say it was a poor sermon? Didn't you think the metaphors were appropriate and the arguments were conclusive? Yes, they were very good as far as that goes. But still, it was a very poor sermon. Will you tell me, please, why you think it was a poor sermon? Because there was no Christ in it. Well, the young man said, Christ is not in every text. We are not to preach Christ always. We must preach what's in the text. So the old man said, Don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London. Yes, said the young man. He says, Ah, said the old preacher, and from every text of Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of Scripture, which is Christ. He says, My dear brother, Your business is when you get to a text, you say, now, what is the road to Christ? And then preach the sermon, running along all of the roads towards the great metropolis, Christ. He says, I have never found one text that had no such road. I will make a road. He says, I would go over hedge, over ditch. I would get, I would get at it. I have to get at my master. For a sermon is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill unless there is a savor of Christ in it. I agree with the substance of that. Now, of course, we all know Spurgeon, and this is a, this is a common uh, aspect of his ministry, but that I wouldn't agree with him everywhere he does that, but I, or how he does that. But I do agree that every passage somehow has to terminate on Christ. After all, Jesus himself said it. All of Scripture is about me. You begin to get into all the dietary laws. What are the dietary laws about? You get into all the sacrificial laws. What are all the sacrificial laws about? What's with all the rules, the regulations, all the codes of conduct and the codes of purity and cleansing and purification? What is that all about? I would submit to you that all of those things somehow, somewhere at the end of the day, have something to do with Jesus, who is himself the substance 
of those shadows. He is the reality. He has come. Don't you see how magnificent this is? That, that God in giving all of those detailed, meticulous instructions has to do with one person. A person is behind all of those things. That to me just blows my mind. It makes me fall in love with Jesus. That's what it does. It makes me just stand in awe of how great he is, how magnificent, how, how pervasive, how sovereign. All the scripture is about him and Jesus taught this over and over and over and over. I had to really resist the temptation of quoting every place Jesus said this in the Gospels. Let me just give you one. John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, i.e. the Scriptures, that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Whatever passages in the Old Testament speak of life, ultimately are realized in Christ. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the Old Testament asks a question that the New Testament, that Jesus only can answer. Job asks, if a man dies, will he ever live again? What does Jesus say to that? If a man believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. That is how that's answered. He says, do you not think that I will, he says, do not, do not think that I'll accuse you before the Father. You have one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you have set your hope. Verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed about, uh, on me, you would have believed me, for he, Moses, wrote about me. What? Moses wrote about Jesus Christ? Yes. Absolutely. I think sometimes we underestimate these Old Testament writers. That we, sometimes we think they didn't know anything about Messianic theology. Sometimes we think they were really ignorant. They just didn't even know what they were talking about. I would venture to say, as many scholars have pointed out, that Old Testament writers probably had a much more robust Messianic theology than we give them credit for. I mean, you don't think Hosea in Hosea chapter 3 knows what he's talking about when he's talking about the son of David after David has died? How can David have sons after he dies? But he talks about the son of David, and he, or he talks about David, the king of God's people. You don't think he knew that that was a reference to the Messiah? Of course he did. Of course he did. One of the reasons I think this hermeneutic is so glorious is because it's so scandalous. When Jesus did this in Luke chapter 4, and he picked up the scripture and again opened it, this time to the book of Isaiah, and read a lengthy portion out of the scroll, he concludes by saying what? Today, this text is fulfilled in your hearing. What? That ancient scroll of Isaiah that was written hundreds of years ago, you're saying that it was about you? Guess how the people respond? They grab him, and they threaten to throw him off a cliff. The volume of the book is written of him. How do we apply this? A lot has been done in the church 
to bring this up to us. I was just looking through this massive dictionary. You've probably heard of it. The New Testament Use of the Old Testament by G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson. And I was just going through page after page of this thousand or so page book. And I couldn't believe how many entries, encyclopedic entries, were all about Christology. The New Testament using the Old Testament for the purpose of Christology. You could just get lost in this. You really can. You really can. Now, I guess to show you how to do this is maybe I could just tell you a little bit of what I've been doing. I've been studying the book of Leviticus. And so if you want to turn to Leviticus chapter 1, maybe we could just experiment a little bit on how we can actually do this. And then at the end, I'll recommend a couple of things, okay? couple of things. The book of Leviticus is amazing. One author said that the, the very seedbed of New Testament theology is found in Leviticus. Another commentator said that Leviticus is the theological foundation of the New Testament. That's an amazing statement that in the book of Leviticus is found the gospel. That in the book of Leviticus, we get the very foundation for the atoning work of Christ. Christ in Leviticus. What could be more glorious than the fact that you can go back to a book like Leviticus and then all of a sudden know that you're in a Jesus book, even though you're not in one of the Gospels. You can open up Leviticus and know this book is about Christ one way or another. How about this? Let me show you three things I see from the book of Leviticus that have either direct or indirect correlation to Christ. Number one, we see three things we see about Christ. Christ as revealer, Christ as redeemer, and Christ as resurrected Lord. Number one. Chapter one, verse one. Then the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, and then comes an introductory statement of the book of Leviticus on how to be accepted. But we skip too quickly over verse 1 if we miss the fact, number one, that God is a God of revelation, and secondly, that God is a God of communion. God is a God that fellowships with his people. And when I say that this has something to do with Christ is because this is a theme that is repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament. God speaking to his people and then God dwelling with his people. In the Septuagint, you find the Greek word for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. You find skenao talked about in terms of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. Well, guess what? John uses that word. And who does he use it for? Jesus who is Jesus? He is the Word of God. He reveals God to us. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is at the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Christ is the revealer. And Christ also comes to dwell with us. The Word, the Logos, the wisdom of God became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, huh? That comes from the Old Testament covenant promises that God would be grace and truth to his people. And Jesus comes and he says, I'm here to tabernacle with my people and to give them 
grace, and truth. The volume of the book is written of him. What about Christ's redemption? Well, Leviticus 17, you should all know this verse. Leviticus 17, 11. Christ as Redeemer. This is, I think, one of the pillar texts that led one of these commentators to say that, again, Leviticus is the theological foundation of the New Testament teaching on the atoning work of Christ. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of life that makes atonement. That makes atonement. The doctrine of atonement is not a New Testament invention. The doctrine of atonement is so deeply rooted in the institution of Israel that by the time Jesus steps foot on the scene, the people of Israel are surrounded by Christ's imagery. Everything they do, my friends, from the moment they get up to the moment they go to sleep, they are surrounded by pictures, types, allusions, portraits of Christ. And now that Christ is here, and I think the Apostle Paul did this. When Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, what did he ask? Lord, who are you? Jesus. And I think instantly for Paul, all of that Old Testament theology that he knew as a good, scholarly, actually elite rabbi, a Pharisee, excuse me, he wrapped all that theology around Jesus. He said, oh, now, now, now I know who it's all about. Everything is about him. That's why he says, I've counted everything as loss so that I may gain him, so that I might know him. Forget the old shadows. Forget the old types. What are you talking about? I've got the substance right here. It's Jesus. He's the reality. But all these foundations go back. Like Leviticus chapter 17, Leviticus chapter 1 is all about being accepted by God. Look at one, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, where I could just read it to you. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and he, that he may be accepted before the Lord. You know, the book of Hebrews is all about this, pointing out this truth that all of these repetitious sacrifices were just not enough. They leave us in need of a greater form of atonement, of a greater atonement. All of that bloodshed in the Old Covenant is just not sufficient to make the, worship, the worshiper perfect. Perfect. Perfect righteousness. Perfectly accepted by God. Right with God. He says, the author of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 13 if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of heifers sprink and sprinkling, those things would have been defiled, excuse me, and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish 
you want to talk about a male without defect, Jesus was the, the male without defect, without blemish to God. Only he can cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. All of Leviticus' redemption is found in him. He is the Redeemer. And what about the Christ as the resurrected Lord? Oh, resurrection in Leviticus. What? How about Leviticus chapter 23? Leviticus chapter 23. <laughs> this is an Easter message? Yeah, it's the Easter message. And the resurrection is right here. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. Say to them, When you enter the land which I'm going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you will bring the sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest to the priest, and he will wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted on the day after the Sabbath. What day is the day after the Sabbath? Sunday, to the pre and the priests shall wave it. When Paul spoke in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the prototypical first fruits, 1520, but now Christ, he has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. When was Christ risen from the dead? On Sunday. On the first day of the week, the chronology is perfect. Listen to what Alan Ross says. Alan Ross in his commentary on Leviticus says, The timing in Leviticus fits precisely with the fulfillment of the New Testament. Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week, on the, on the morrow, after the Sabbath, and after the Passover, earlier in the chapter. Taken in its normal meaning, this refers to the first day of the week that Christians have come to observe as Easter Sunday. The apostles didn't miss this connection. I think he's right. In his understanding of the fulfillment of the Feast of First Fruits. What are we celebrating these Feasts of First Fruits for? Why do we have to give God the first fruits? Why do we have to wave it after the Sabbath? Why those days? Why like that? It was because Jesus would one day, by his resurrection, do exactly what those feasts were doing. They were signifying not just that God is sovereign, God provides my crops, God makes my fields grow, God provides food for my table, but also when you waved the offering to God, what you were saying is that there is a harvest to come. You are believing that God is going to bring in a harvest. Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15 but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Because he lives, you will live. Because he was risen, you will rise. He is your first fruit. He is, the, he is typologically signifying that because he rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead. Isn't that remake? We sit here and we marvel at the fact that Christ ro rose from the dead, and we should. It's everything. It's our whole life. It's our whole faith. That's what Paul says in the chapter. If he's not risen, your faith is in vain. But don't miss it, because he rose as the first fruits. You will rise. You yourself. That's just remarkable. God, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Do you want to die? 
I don't want to go down into the ground and be eaten by worms and have my body, my flesh, and my bones decay. Death is a curse. These college students blow my mind as I'm sitting there talking to them about death. Oh, I can't wait to die to replenish the earth. What? Well, death is just a part of life. Could there be any greater lie that the enemy could preach to young people today? Death is just part of life. It's just normal. Just accept it. You know what the Bible says? Death is a curse. It is a curse. It is an enemy. As a matter of fact, it says it's the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Oh, curse death. I hate death. That's why I tell these young college students, do you have an answer for death? If you don't, you better listen to what I'm about to say because I know one that does have the answer to death. And many such pictures in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers and in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy and in every other scripture is about him. The Sabbath typifies our rest in Christ now and in the age to come. The Passover speaks of our redemption and propitiation in Christ. The first fruits, the resurrection, Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, speaks about God giving the Spirit and writing the law on our hearts. The trumpets of the Old Covenant speak of a future ingathering of God's people. The Day of Atonement was for the removal of the sin of God's people. Matthew 1.21. The removal of the sin of God's people. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest doesn't atone for the Amalekites. He doesn't atone for the Philistines. He doesn't atone for the Canaanites. He atones for God's covenant people. And our high priest, when he made atonement and went into the holy of all, he atones for his people. Those who have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. The Feast of Tabernacles is all about the consummation of the end of the age. And the imagery, my dear brothers and sisters, goes on and on and on. And I am just amazed that this man for whom all of the scriptures is about sat with his disciples, condescended to come down, and he ate fish with us. He ate a meal with us. Let's pray. Father, Please help us. Give us eyes to see. I don't have everything figured out about this. I don't know, but I'm trying because I want my heart to burn. I want my eyes to be open to the fact that the volume of the book is written about our great, glorious, risen Christ. We thank you for his resurrection, as it says there concerning the Feast of First Fruits, it was in order that your people could be accepted. And we know the Apostle Paul says in Romans 4, verse 25, that Jesus was risen for our justification. Thank you so much for our hope, Lord. Thank you so much for the life that we have in him and that because he lives today, because he was risen, we will rise with him in triumph. And for that reason, Lord, we celebrate, we sing, and we want to worship you in Christ's name. Amen.